Good morning. It's very nice to see so many new faces here. Would you guys stand and join us in song this morning?
is my father's world. I've rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, and the wonders This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. The God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget That though the wrong can seem so strong God is the ruler This is my Father's world Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King Let the heavens ring
bones will sing great are you Lord all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Take a seat. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Adam Waters. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church, and we are just so thrilled that the Spiritos singers and families could be joining us this morning. Uh, we thank you and we welcome you. Grace Bible Church uh, exists to experience for ourselves and then proclaim to others the forgiveness, healing, and hope that is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. If you'd like more information about GBC and the ministries that we have, what you might do to get plugged in, or how you might grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, we invite you to go to our website at www.gbcelm.org. Likewise, you can follow us on most of the social media platforms at GBC Elm, where you can find uh, posts, teasers about the coming sermons, and uh, so on and so forth. We also have growth groups here at Grace Bible Church, which are essentially just uh, opportunities for small communities to get together and discuss God and what he's doing in their lives, studying the word, talking about what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to live as a disciple of Christ in this crazy world sometimes. And so you can find out more information or register for growth groups, which I would really encourage each and every one of you to do. There is something special that I certainly can't explain. I think it's probably related to the way God made us. But there's something special about walking life together with others. You know, we can sit in a sermon or sit in a service and hear the word of God, but when we talk about it and we internalize it, and we drive it deep into our hearts, it's only then that our lives begin to change. And so if you're not yet in a growth group, I'd encourage you to really do that. There's something special there. All right, youth group for middle and high school students meets on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. here at Grace Bible Church. They do awesome games, amazing snacks. They do small groups and Bible teachings as part of uh, their gatherings. This Wednesday, the topic is going to be the selfie-centered life and how it leads to isolation. 
They're going to talk about what true selflessness brings and how that really fulfills the way that we were made and that we find the happiness we seek when we reach out to others. You can just show up Wednesday, 7 p.m., or you can view more information to register online. VBS summer camp this year will be June 13th through the 16th from 9 a.m. till noon for those entering kindergarten through fifth grade. The theme this year is Pioneers with a Purpose. So we're all going to get cholera, and we are going to... Just kidding. No Donner party here. Children, children will discover four key purposes uh, of God in their lives. Why are they living? Why are they here? What is the meaning of life? They'll be participating in skits, songs, snacks, and crafts. And each day there will be hands-on frontier experiences. I don't know what that means, but hands-on frontier experiences. You can register now online. Uh, on March 5th, the Elmhurst is having, Elmhurst is having the St. Patrick's Day Parade down Spring Road, and we are participating by serving free green hot chocolate, yes, it's green, and shamrock cookies at the gazebo. So if any of you are going to be there, come down and see us. For those of us who are part of GBC's family, if you're willing to help, come. If you're willing to help serve, register online or call the office and let us know. We need as much help. And if you're willing to walk in the parade, I don't care if you're a kingdom kid two years old to a kingdom kid 100 years old, contact Roxanne. She's going to ask you to walk and hand some stuff out. So we thank you in advance for that. All right, let's just take a moment here to go before the Lord, to ask the Father to not only bless our service here, which he clearly has already. The music was amazing. I don't know about you, but I felt the Spirit of God moving here. So let's thank him for that. Let's go before him and ask his blessing upon our lives and upon this world. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, just needy people. We know, Lord, that you are high and exalted, mighty above all of your creation, Lord. As you look down upon us, you superintend the events of mankind, Lord. We know you raise up kings and you bring kings down. We know yet, even though you're involved in every aspect, you're involved in us, in each of us. Lord, you are all-powerful and all-loving, gracious and merciful. And Lord, we confess that we need that grace and mercy because we fail to live up to your standard. We think thoughts we shouldn't. We say things we certainly most not should not. And Lord, you know that we do things that make you sad, that violate your holiness. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of those. Lord, we often turn a blind eye to those who are in need, whether it be in our own families or the communities or world around us. We confess today, Lord, the secret sins of our heart. You know the ones we're talking about. And we give them to you, knowing that through Christ we are forgiven. Lord, we thank you. We're so grateful. We thank you for our many blessings, blessings we frankly take for granted far too often. Our homes, our families, our very life and health, Lord, our blessings, our gifts from you, the only true and good God. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. We pray, Father, that we would not take that for granted and that in thanksgiving and gratitude, we would live lives that reflect your goodness and your love for others. Lord, we even thank you for our struggles because we know that in those times you are near, that you grow us, you mold us, and you make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We admit, Lord, that they are not fun and that they're painful, but we believe that the fruit of that suffering is the image of Christ born in us. Father, we pray for the needy. 
We pray for the poor. We pray for those who are distant from you, the alone. Lord, we pray that you would use us. Perhaps, Lord, our biggest prayer is that you would make us usable, that you would transform us and change us, that we would bring the, um, the, the forgiveness, healing, and hope that is in Christ to those around us. We pray for peace, Lord, in our very streets, in the streets of Chicago and around the world, Lord, especially in the Ukraine. Lord, as we fear this impending war coming, we pray that your hand would intervene. We pray, Lord, that you would protect those who are under attack. We pray, Lord, that enemies would come together, that truth would be spoken. We pray, Lord, that this war would be averted and no life would be lost. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you that you're smiling upon us even now as we sit here. We pray, Lord, that you would encounter us here as we sit through the words of the message, through the music already. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the spirit of singers and their families as they come up and they demonstrate, they manifest, Lord, the gifts that you've given them. We thank you, Lord, for those gifts, and we know that they've only come from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Are the shanks here? Shanks? Shanks are downstairs. Okay. They might be. So the shanks are supposed to be here. Mike and Marina are walking in probably right now. Mike and Marina Shank are missionaries to uh, Guatemala. They're on their way to Bolivia in the next few months. They are in town for a week. And so they are going to be here. Oh, I can see him running by with little Moses. You don't have to come up or anything, Mike. Um, we were lucky enough. Hey, there they are. So they had an opportunity to come back. They left in September, and we are just so grateful that they're here. We're grateful that they're safe, and we're looking forward to interacting with them. So after the service, which we're going to have a cake reception for multiple things, and we're going to talk about it at the end. You don't want to leave. There's going to be food, okay? We're going to talk about some of those things. Make sure that you greet them. Um, pray that, uh, that uh, they would continue to develop in their English curriculum. Let me rephrase that. Pray that Marina would help develop an effective English curriculum for those with whom she's interacting. And pray that God will form leaders of integrity, faithful helpers, and healthy churches in Guatemala, and that God will show, how to be- show them, Shanks, how to best serve wherever they're planted, uh, which is a really imp- certainly a prayer that we've been praying for some time. Where is God really wanting them to be? And so you can join them in that prayer. All right. Okay, girls. It's time for you to come on up. We're really looking forward to this. We're so grateful that you're here today, so thank you.
Thank you, Spirito, for sharing your beautiful voices with us this morning. We really have been blessed. And now it's time for the Kingdom Kids, ages 5 through 4th grade, to be dismissed. Turning to God's Word, I'm reading today Mark 10, verse 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home, or brothers or sisters, or mother or father, or children or fields, for me in the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In my staff meeting, I was talking about what I was going to preach today, and someone piped up and said, oh, that sounds just like the great Gatsby. It's like, oh, man, it's been a long time since I read that book, but I did. I actually went to the library, I checked it out, and I read it, and it's an amazing book. Now, some of you might have been, will say, some time since you had to read it in high school. So let me give you a synopsis of the story because I think the story of Gatsby illustrates for us a life that is based on riches. It's vapid and empty. 
The Great Gatsby was written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's set in the 1920s in Long Island, New York. It tells a tragic story of a young man named Jay Gatsby who recreates himself from literally a pauper, pauper to an apparent prince just to win back a lost love, Daisy, a young woman from the upper crust of high society. Daisy marries Tom while Gatsby is delayed in Europe after fighting in World War I. And Gatsby perhaps rightly perceives that it was his lack of money that turned Daisy to look someplace else when he was delayed and so fulfill societal expectations of her. Earning great riches through some illegitimate and secret means that they're never really clear on, Gatsby purchases the house across the water from Tom and Daisy's. I should say the mansion across the water from Tom and Daisy's. And at night, he looks across that water to their place and sees a single green dim light at the end of their pier. That light represents all of Gatsby's hopes and dreams about Daisy, about money, about their future together, about the American dream. However, despite all this effort, Gatsby in the end dies alone under confusing and tragic circumstances, without ever obtaining that which he wanted so badly, that which he was convinced would bring him happiness. You see, it turns out that all the money in the world could not get him the joy that he was seeking. In the end, money can't buy you love. You know, we live in a country obsessed with money, don't we? I mean, we really, really do. We consider ourselves poor sometimes, but when you register ourselves against the rest of the world, it's obvious. We're all very, very wealthy. We're all rich. We all pursue wealth. It's part of who we are as the American individual seeking to make the American dream real in our own lives. But this impulse often leads us to suffering. We punish ourselves by seeking more happiness and riches and creating within ourselves an even greater insatiable craving for more. Consider this. We work hard to get the highest paying job so we can have a bigger house. Maybe two of them. We work hard to get the sportier car. We work hard to have a, a better, bigger family, more kids, greater respect, less suffering. All the while, the more and more we work, the less time we end up spending in the big house. The less time we get to drive the sportier car, becoming more distant from our kids, wives, and husbands every moment, often losing the respect we sought by working jobs that demand that we sacrifice our own values and dignity. And suffering is really the result. More money, more problems. Well, the Bible talks about this in Proverbs 28. It says, A faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Scripture says that one who has a craving and a desire for more and more ends up being punished. Now, this is not speaking of some godly punishment, some eternal punishment. This is speaking of punishment in the here and now. The suffering that comes which comes from seeking more and more. What we need to understand today as we read this passage is that the pursuit of wealth is risky because it tempts us to rely on them over God. But God promises to reward our rejection of that impulse, our rejection of riches. You see, we need to know this because we will seek comfort in all the wrong places, won't we? We have a bad day, we go buy something. <laughs> we go shop for something. We feel something is amiss in our lives. We seek to create some external environment, either adding something new or controlling a circumstance in order to find that comfort, that peace in our lives. And money is often the tool that allows us to do that. 
We seek power in the wrong places, and we miss out on God's best for our lives. So if you'll turn with me, if you have your Bibles, Mark 10, 17 through 31. If you don't, it's fine. It'll be up on the screen. Just follow along. In this passage, we learn about a man who comes and approaches Jesus. Now, Matthew calls this man young, and Luke calls this man rich. And so he's affectionately been known throughout the ages as the rich young ruler. And from this text, we have three lessons that we can glean, things that we really, if we incorporate into our heart, if we allow God through his spirit to implant in our hearts, I think that we will find, God promises that we will find the reward and joy that we're seeking. So let's take a look. This is what Jesus says. As Jesus started on his way, a man rose, uh, ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus in his enigmatic fashion says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. Up to this point in our study of Mark, we're in a series right now of the book of Mark. No one has asked Jesus this most important question. I mean, this is the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does it take to live forever in the presence of God? This is the perhaps most important question of the entire book. But the way the young man asks it betrays his misunderstanding of Jesus and the nature of eternal life. So Jesus responds and says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. It could also be translated as no one is good except the one true God. Jesus' words here, we need to understand, are tongue-in-cheek. He's not denying that, that he is God. He's not denying that he is good either. Jesus elsewhere makes that claim quite clear, and so do the disciples who followed him after. He's asking, though, the young man to consider, reconsider, perhaps, his own perspective on who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling him to do. In the end, it's really a question of authority. You see, This young man says, good teacher, and even falls down at his feet, but he calls him good teacher. It betrays that this kid thinks that he, Jesus, is simply just a smart guy, a wise man, a sage, but a human nonetheless, somebody who has a good ideal about life, but when the rubber meets the road, when things actually happen, when reality strikes, it's that at best, ideal. So he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit Jesus goes on and tells them. He says, you know the commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and your father. Now, I'm not exactly sure what to make of this, but I find it interesting that Jesus adds a sin to the list of Ten Commandments when he tells this young man that he knows the commandments. He lists the ones we all know. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shalt, but he adds one. Thou shall not defraud. Thou shall not defraud. We know that in this world, riches are often accrued by defrauding those who have less power, those who are unable often to defend themselves. And so I wonder if Jesus is adding this word, this line, to his list of commandments to strike at the heart of the young man, to show him that, in fact, he had not followed all the commandments, that there was at least one that struck home to him, Defraud. I mean, this is not, we don't want to come down too hard on this guy because this isn't something that we're above either, is it? We often misrepresent ourselves in order to get a better situation, a better outcome for us. You don't believe me? Try itemizing your taxes. It's true. 
He says, teacher, the young man goes on. He declares, I've kept all of these since a young boy. And I love this. This sounds like this youthful confidence that I would have said, oh, I've done everything. And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Youth can bring such naivety and untried confidence. But age brings a greater reality to our true nature and our own ability to make mistakes, doesn't it? Someone told me once, not that long ago, that they're trying to tell their kids everything your parents said is right. (laughs) I didn't want to hear that. Nothing my parents told me when I was a kid was correct. Everything was wrong. Now that I'm an adult and I have my own children, I look, man, they were right. What if I just had lived my life doing everything my mom and dad said I should do? Taking all of their advice, saving more money, working harder, not sleeping in, don't call off work. All of the things that my mom and dad tried to teach me to instill a certain way of life to me is not because they're smarter. It's because they've made the same mistakes that I was making in that time. But I was naive. In the book of John, there's a woman who's caught in adultery, and they drag her before the elders to be stoned. And they ask Jesus, they try to trap him. They say, should this woman be stoned or not be stoned? Jesus wisely says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You think that's the lesson. But if you look at the next line, it says, and then one at a time, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they dropped the rock and walked away. There's something about life and the mistakes that we make that really drive home the fact that we often struggle and that it's so easy to err. Yet this young man says, I've kept them all. Jesus now drives at the heart of the matter. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, Jesus puts his finger directly on the heart of the matter. He pushes back against this young man's empty moralism. I've kept all of these. And he says, no, you haven't. Because acting is different than motivation. Now, I think that's a misconception that we often have, even as Christians, but it's certainly a misconception that I had before I was a Christian was that Christianity or religion in general was basically just a way to do better, act differently, live behaviorally different lives. But the truth that I've found is that Christianity is so much different. It's about what motivates us. Jesus, as we read his words again and again, says it's not so much about what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. Because the truth is, is you can do exactly the right thing for exactly the wrong reason, and it's empty. Now imagine this was Jay Gatsby who fell at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, give up your wealth and everything you're seeking through it and follow me. Be my disciple, not Daisy's. You see, for Gatsby, everything that he earned and sought was a means to get back that which he believed would give him true joy and happiness. Daisy. You know, the same is true for us. It's not often that we seek money just for money. We often seek wealth for what it will do in our lives, how it will protect us, what we can gain from it, what we can achieve in order to find that happiness that really God has insisted again, again and again in his work can only be found through him. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter 
Now, we all have different matters. Jesus might have said something else to each and any one of us had we bowed down before his feet and said, what must I do? But anything that distracts us from God's will, Jesus wants you now to know is in the way and is an obstacle. Now, I don't believe Jesus is telling each one of us to sell everything we own and give everything to the poor, but he's addressing this young man's perspective on the priority of and the love for riches. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. We live in a pretty good area. This is a serious statement. This is something we need to take seriously. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Not only does this sort of fly in the face of our cultural norm here in the United States, but it flies in the face of the cultural norm at the time Jesus said it. You see, in the Old Testament, at the time of the giving of the Mosaic law, God promised Israel that when they entered the land, if they obeyed the covenant and they trusted him and they did the things that God asked them to do, that he would bless them. But if they violated the covenant that God made with them, that they would expect repercussions. And those repercussions would often come from invasion or lack of crops or some sort of material wealth. So over time, what it became to be understood, that is, if you were living obediently, you were rich. And so in Israel during this time, often you would see rich people, and the cultural norm was to say, they are righteous. They are good. We do that, don't we? Don't we do that now? That's not something unique to the first century. I mean, we sit in our house, we look across the street, we see the cars they drive and the designer clothes they wear, the designer clothes their kids wear. We look at them, how happy they are and how put together. And we think they got it right. They're doing it right. And if we're not careful, we begin to allow that to become an obstacle. And we say, I need to do what they're doing in order to be okay as well. I call it the ick the ick. I don't know what it is, but you know, it's that feeling that just something's not right. That there's something else out there. Maybe in the Great Gatsby, it's the green light. Maybe the green dim light at the end of the pier is the ick, the thing that we seek in order to make everything okay. But Jesus, rearranging the disciples' perspective by showing them the danger of allowing anything, in this case money, to get in the way of following him. For this reason, We must embrace the truth that, one, earthly riches are risky. This is our first lesson for this morning. Earthly riches are risky. Why? We rely on them instead of God to achieve the things that we need, to achieve a life where we can fix, manage, and control everything. We seek riches to avoid suffering. We seek riches for power to control. Power to control. Just the other day, a branch on my tree in the driveway fell and hit the back of my car. My car is only a couple years old, so and it scratch wasn't bad, thank God. It broke a tail light and this and that. But when I went out, I was astounded for a moment about how not upset I was. I walked out and I said, oh, well, that stinks. The branch fell and hurt my car. Now I need to go get it fixed. I started thinking about, you know, deductibles and so on and so forth. It wasn't for a couple of days that I looked back and I evaluated my reaction because in the past I would have totally freaked out. I was surprised by my own reaction. At first I thought, wow, I must be really growing. I must be really, I must be really growing in the way I handle life's ups and downs, trusting the Lord. But you know what? This is the truth. I have money in a savings account. I have money in a savings account and my very first thought when I saw what happened was, I'm protected. 
I can pay for that. How might my reaction have been? Consider yourself in that situation. How might your reaction have been if you had negative dollars in your account? If you had no money? Or you had insurance that wouldn't cover it? When I look back on it, what I thought was a blessing of my growth turned out to really be that sneaky piece of my heart that we all carry around that shows that we're trying to insulate ourselves from struggle and pain. We look to riches for comfort when struggling emotionally. Like I said, I feel bad, let's go shop. I totally relate to that. Amazon, oh my gosh. To escape from suffering. Work out harder. Buy more vitamins. Get more surgeries. To protect from disaster. Perhaps the most dangerous is to protect us or to to earn our salvation. I have money, so I'm okay. No one, I say this all the time to the church, those of you who are visiting, thank you, welcome, but no one ever comes to the Lord on the day they win the lottery. No one ever wins a lottery and says, oh my gosh, the Lord has blessed me. I will now follow him with my life. No, they say, oh good, I got that under control. Now I can, you know. Tragic are the stories of people who won the lottery who end up with nothing, nothing, Gatsby, nothing. The Bible is clear that we're to reject anything that gets in the way of God's will for our lives, anything that gets in the way of us coming and relying on God alone. We seek to control, but we need to trust that God is omnipotent and good. We seek comfort, but God promises to comfort those who mourn. We seek to escape suffering, but suffering is the pathway to peace because it requires us to reject our own selfish desires and embrace God's will, which is often painful, but it's eternally productive. In Psalm 119, it says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. You know, going through this life and the suffering that we experience, it's kind of like working out our spiritual muscles if we allow it to happen. If when we're being battered and beaten down by the things of this world, sometimes our own sin, sometimes the sin of others, and we look to God for meaning and strength, God does something within us that we cannot do on our own. That suddenly we we do grow stronger. And as we have to deal with more of life on life's terms, we grow and we become more like Christ in the process. We look to our money for protection, but we're not alone. We have a protector. We are not without a champion. We are not orphans left to fend for ourselves. If you've embraced Jesus Christ, you are a child adopted into God's family. That's an amazing truth. I was sitting uh, at a dinner party yesterday. It sounds so highfalutin. It was just, we went out to eat. Okay, we just went out to eat. And I was right next to this guy, and we were talking, and he told me a story about how he came uh, to know the Lord. And, and we were just chatting back and forth. And um, he said he grew up in the 60s and he was seeking meaning for his life. Uh, he was actually grew up uh, as um, culturally Jewish. Uh, and so he was looking for answers. He didn't find them in the rabbi when he would go to you know, synagogue three times a year. He was a, they weren't a religious family. He didn't find them in drugs in college. He didn't find them in Eastern mysticism that he was beginning to be experience, you know, trying out, trying to find meaning. He just felt so devoid of any meaning in his life. And over a series of circumstances, a beautiful story. He started crying. I started crying. I felt like an idiot, but it, you know, it was powerful. It was powerful. He said that the thing that really got me was the understanding of God's love for me 
Not just that God loves us or God loves sinners, that God loves me. And it was that truth that changed him, that began a path in his life to where he got rid of everything that stood in the way. Got rid of everything. Sometimes the things that stand in the way get rid of themselves. Let me explain. So he grew up as a Jew. He was born Jewish. Converting to Christianity is not a great thing. Often they are shunned. Often they're ostracized or even disowned. There are times in certain very conservative Jewish uh, circles that when someone converts to another religion, especially Christianity, they hold a funeral for them. It's as if that person has died. But he was prepared because of the love of Christ in his life, the love felt and realized by faith, that everything had to go that was in the way. Riches are risky to the very happiness we seek. The very happiness we seek. Think of what this does. Riches, familial discord. Nothing like an inheritance to cause problems in a family that has otherwise been loving, trusting, and wonderful to one another. Emotional strife. Material bankruptcy. Think of the crash of, what is that, 1929. Or 2008. The sharp increase in suicides and mental health crises as a result of money lost. Some of you lost businesses. Some of you know that pain. Or spiritual complacency. When we have money, we don't look for anything. But rejecting the love of money is not as simple as it seems, is it? It's not like, I want to go into my bank account and give all my money away. It's not like I want to suddenly downsize to a tent in my backyard or something like that. But it's harder when it comes time to choose a different path. When we look at the young man in the text here, uh, the illegitimate power we seek through riches is legitimately found in God when we just ask him and trust him for it. Listen to what the disciples say in verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, and Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' analogy here, this eye and camel, a needle and camel piece has puzzled interpreters for years, thousands of years. There's a, I don't know, we'll call it a myth maybe, a legend, that in the gate of the city, there was a smaller gate called the needle gate. Right? So if you stand back and you imagine a huge gate, you know, 30 feet high, 40 feet high by 20 feet wide, there's several gates around the city of Jerusalem, the old city. And if you look at how big they are, a small gate down in the center, a little door, would it, it would look like the eye of a needle. And so it's often been said that what Jesus is talking about, it's harder for a big camel, which are like nine feet tall, to get through that gate, in, this, in the, the door in the gate. Others say, no, what's actually being spoken of here is the fact that camels were laden with goods. They carried things, merchandise, material. In order to get through that gate, you had to take those things off. You needed to shed the weight of all of that material because the camel was too large. So the notion being that we need to shed our material wealth to enter the kingdom. Others will say that the door's a lot lower. It's like for a person, but a camel's nine feet tall. So the camel must bow down to get through the door, to talk about submission. But I think Jesus gives us pretty obviously what the answer is here. If we just go on and read verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed. They said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, not with God. All things are possible with God. You see, Jesus is describing an impossible, absurd situation. So sometimes we just need to take Jesus literally. He's literally saying, 
a huge camel through the eye of a needle. It's not hard. It doesn't take submission. It's not that we need to take our goods off of us. It's impossible. And we can only do it through the power of God. It is impossible for us on our own to reject these things that come between us and God, including riches. Those things that we seek justification and power, and it's only through God's power that we can do that. That's the second lesson. God empowers us to reject our riches. I'm not saying that we should not, you know, embrace income tax return. What God's asking us to do is to reject the need, the love of that. God's asking us not to trust in that, to trust in him. Because he is the one who provides. Rejecting other saviors, that's really what it is, is not difficult. It's impossible. Because it violates our very nature. You see, we have a thing within us that wants more and wants to hold on to that which we think is important. Years ago when I was a kid, I read a book called My Side of the Mountain, and they were trapping raccoons in this. It's about a kid who goes off into the wilderness. It's like this adolescent wonderlust kind of thing, right? So what they were talking about is how they would capture trap raccoons without a trap. They would get a tree stump, one that was flat. They'd drill a hole in the tree stump, and around the edges of the hole, they would drive nails, four nails. In the bottom of the hole, they'd take a coin, or a piece of shiny foil or something and put it down in the hole. The raccoon would get up on the stump, look down in that hole, see that shiny coin, go down and reach it. The nails are pointed down. Hands make it past the nails, they get the coin. Now they pull up, what happens? The nails hold their hand. A raccoon wants what's in its hand so badly that all you must do is walk up and club it. I'm not advocating clubbing animals, let me tell you. The point is, is that the raccoon does not realize that what he's holding on to is leading to his ultimate demise. We do that when we hold on to riches of our own. We reach down, we're trapped. God wants us to let go of that which we seek to hold on to, that which we find our justification in and trust him and him alone. When we look, when we trust God and look to the power of his spirit for our strength, God can do within us that which we cannot do, that which we cannot do for ourselves. This does not mean we do not work. This does not mean we don't make hard choices, but we trust God for the results. This is a principle in our life that's very important. We do what God is asking us to do, and we take all of the results and give them to him. We trust him for what's going to happen. Part of the reason rejecting wealth is salvation is that, part of the reason rejecting wealth is salvation is so hard is that we cannot always see how God is offering something better than what we have. In other words, it doesn't seem to pay to give up something good now on the promise of something better later. In other words, it's hard exercising faith. It's hard. But it's a decision we must make. And it's good that we make it because Jesus promises a reward. That's our third lesson. Final lesson. God promises to reward riches rejected. Then Peter speaks up. We've left everything to follow you. Jesus answers, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me or the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Before I was a believer, I would read, before I was a believer, I was a neo-atheist. 
Okay, so I like trusted in Richard Dawkins, science was king, everything pointed to that. It was, for me, religion was not only superstitious, it was dangerous. And I'd often try to find evidence for that to bolster my own confidence that I was right. And this was one of the passages. I would say, this is a cult. No one asks you to, no one asks you to give up your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your house and your riches and everything to follow him. What's next? It feels like the next line if you watch TV is that, send me your money and God will bless you, right? We've all heard those. When I started to read with an open mind, and I started to consider the context of Jesus' words, things became clearer for me. When someone became a Christ follower during this time, they were, like I had spoken about today, completely cut off. They couldn't buy food. No one would sell to them. Their property was taken away from them. Any home or business that they had, removed by the religious leaders. Family cut them off and said, we don't even know who you are. And so they were left completely helpless. Jesus' words here are not so much that we need to make the decision to leave, so much that we need to understand that we will be left. And that when we give those things up and we do not succumb to the pressure of going back, that he will reward us. That we can have faith that though it's hard now, God will provide. Christ is not asking us to give up riches simply to take something away that is good from us. When we rely on riches to find happiness and protection, we end up getting neither. A life lived for the pursuit of money is, maybe my favorite word, vapid, empty. See, the promises of God, those promises that we base our trust on are rooted in his character. Think about that. If someone came up who had lied to you before and offered to give you something, would you believe it? But if someone who came to you who had always been truthful, someone who you could trust, someone who was always good and loving promised you something, wouldn't you believe that that promise would be fulfilled more likely? Well, God is the ultimate character. God is the most loving, most trusting, most providing, most faithful, most powerful in all the universe. And when he promises things and we accept them by faith, they will come through. Consider God's faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will not he do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God promises, and God is faithful. Not only that, God's good. Listen to this, Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God's power, the word we use is omnipotence. He has all power. Mark 10, 27, Jesus himself. It's impossible with man, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In God's wisdom, he knows exactly what he's doing, and we can trust that. You see, when we give up riches, we get a kingdom. When we give up earthly friends and family, we get eternal friends and family. We give up that which fades to get that which will shine brilliantly forever. Rewards in heaven in Jesus Christ, our Savior. It really boils down to this. In Mark 8.36, Jesus says this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is it that we seek here that we're willing to risk eternal bliss for? It seems like such an obvious answer. Yet it's deceptive and our hearts are as well. 
For God's promise to provide for us and protect us are rooted in God's love, and that love has been most clearly demonstrated in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him would have, shall not perish but have eternal life. That when we trust Christ, that Christ is being God's gift to us, sinners who did not deserve it. That God, based on his faithfulness and promise and power and love, adopts us as children. That's amazing. And we just simply embrace it by faith. We simply say, Lord, I trust you and not me. (laughs) I trust you and not anything else, riches included. So earthly riches are risky. But God empowers us to reject them when we need to. We can do it through his spirit. And what's perhaps best is he rewards us for doing so. We find that which we actually seek. I don't want to ruin it for you, but I'm going to. Gatsby dies in a pool, shot dead, never getting what it is that he wanted. His whole life, the sham of a life he had built. All of the illegitimate and illegal means of getting that money were catching up to him. He died alone. He died without what he sought. Daisy went back to her husband and was never heard from again. All of that seeking after money to find something was for nothing. And it would be so sad, wouldn't it? To wake up one day and look back on our lives and realize that we missed out on everything. That we missed out on our family, we missed out on our friends, we missed out on God's blessing in our life because we were seeking to create it on our own through riches. So let's decide today to not do that. Let's be different. Let's go against what the culture is telling us to do because after all, The only fish that goes with the current is the dead one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in everything. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the power to say no and remind ourselves again and again that no, it's not this thing, it's not this person, it's not these riches that will make me right with you or will make my life okay. It is simply trusting in you and your provision for my life. Lord, it seems so counterintuitive to the culture that we have built here, yet, Lord, your word is true, and you are faithful. Give us the grace to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thou in me.
riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, I keep. But another round of applause for the Spirito Singers. We, we are so grateful that you were able to join us today. It was really a blessing for us. It really was. We hope that we can be a blessing to you as well. In fact, there's a cake reception after this service downstairs for Spirito and uh, for our own youth pastor, Adam Fox, who we are celebrating his graduation from seminary with the Master Divinity from Moody Theological Seminary. So we're going to do that. So we have a cake for Spirito, a cake for Adam, but you can get the other cake if you want. You're not segregated to the cake that's for your name on it. And also we have other exciting news. Most of you, maybe some of you know, but I just want to make the announcement because I'm a glutton for celebration. Um, Adam and Andrea Fox are expecting a baby. This is something that they've been waiting for for a long time, and we are just so grateful to God for his will in this. And so congratulate them, thank them, support them where any way you can, and let's just give uh, all the praise to the Lord for what he's done. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would give them grace this week. Help them, Lord, to evaluate their own lives. Help them, Lord, to see where you might be asking them to pull something out, to rearrange, to prioritize you over riches. I pray, Lord, that you would go with them, that you would walk with them, that they would feel your presence in their life, and that they would trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.
to 